for the most successful leaders, the most successful scientists, the most successful entrepreneurs and inventors that I've met in my career in all sorts of different fields, if there's one thing that they have in common, it's that they lean into curiosity. And for me, that's one of the main guiding principles I've had in my life, which is not so much this stuff about follow your passion that you read all these places, but I follow my curiosity. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now imagine getting a call from Barack Obama. In and of itself, that's not a usual day at the office. But beyond that, imagine getting a call from the then President Barack Obama asking you to work on the US Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Now, what is that? That is a team of individuals whose role it is to advise the Office of the President on the scientific and technological issues that require attention at the highest levels of government. Now, if you're a second-generation physicist, son of two astrophysicists and a biotech entrepreneur currently working on a cure for cancer, when that call comes, you vaguely consider faking the flu and then you jump in with both feet. This was the position that my next guest had found themselves in. Now, luckily for Safi Bakul, working on what he calls loon shots is in his blood. Having already become fascinated for very personal reasons that we will get into, with what all too often makes good teams kill great ideas, kill great innovations, kill great technologies, Safi started to research some of the great ideas that had already influenced the course of humanity. And what he found was pretty surprising. Now, thanks to NASA, we are trained to think that the key to innovation is to aim for a moonshot, you know, literally to land on the moon. However, what Safi found was that it wasn't in fact moonshots that created the first long-distance phone call or the technology that helped the Allies win the Second World War. It was something else, something he now calls a loon shot. Safi studied at Harvard. He received his PhD in physics from Stanford. He was also a Miller Fellow in physics at UC Berkeley and worked a consultant at McKinsey. Having also co-founded a biotechnology company developing new drugs for cancer, he went on to lead its IPO and serve as its CEO for 13 years. To add to that extraordinary list of accolades, he is now also the author of a book that you have to check out, Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases and Transform Industries. Now, this interview was one of my favorite types, you know, the, the type that goes far and wide and fuses a, a variety of different topics, modalities, and then brings it all back together to, to create a new perspective on an important topic. Some of those threads included the real difference between a moonshot and a loonshot and the fascinating history behind the concept of moonshots. Why understanding the molecular structure of water, I'm not joking, at exactly 32 degrees Fahrenheit, is pivotal to understanding how you can structure teams that aren't afraid to take important risks. 
how the traditional viewpoint culture eats strategy for breakfast should be replaced with structure eats culture for lunch. Why every organisation that requires innovation as its lifeblood, in brackets, every organisation, needs to have a chief incentives officer, or at the very least someone who is focused heavily on the incentive programmes of that organisation. How to love your artists and soldiers equally in order to effectively fill the gap between innovation and execution. Now, this one was huge for me. It's been a massive challenge in, in my life as a leader where there are certain type of conversations that just light me up, that put a fire in my belly, conversations about what if, conversations about innovation, conversations about expansion, growth, and certain conversations that can have the opposite effect on me internally, you know, logistics, spreadsheets. Now, both of those things are very necessary to run an effective ship. However, we need to be conscious as leaders about the ones that we jump into and the ones that we can retract from, given half an opportunity. And finally, what, why any type of innovative loonshot thinking requires mental space. And one of the truly best tools I have come across in a long time to quiet the never-ending mental chatter of your mind. I'm hoping that's not just me. If you ask Safi his greatest weapon in attempting to achieve the impossible, he will tell you it's his curiosity. Curiosity that came from having astrophysicists as parents, genuinely curious individuals around him as a child. Curiosity that took him from consulting to the United States military to starting his own biotech company to cure the greatest health issue of our time. And that it's this curiosity that's at the heart of anyone that's ever been crazy enough to attempt a loon shot or nurture those around them so that they can go on to attempt them. So, let's get curious, sit back, strap in, and join me for an epic fusion of the unexpected and at some times seemingly unrelated but utterly compelling ideas of Safi Bukor. Welcome to the show, Safi Bukor. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. It's lovely, lovely to have you. I know we've tried for this once and this is our second attempt. And so I'm just thrilled that we managed to make Me it happen too. this time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick off quick because I have so many questions. As I said to you before we started recording, I'm just I'm a massive fan of your work and your writing style and the way that you mash so many worlds together. So we're going to get into that, but let's kick off. I usually start with the same question, and it's the question about whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert. And the reason I ask is because I feel like there's a story, there's a pervading myth out there that in order to go out there, spread interesting ideas in the world, get up and speak, as I know that you do, you have to be an extrovert. And I've often found that not to be true. And so I'm doing this social experiment at the moment. Yeah, no, I've actually found with some of the most successful people who are out there uh, speaking and interacting and selling, many of them are the exact opposite. And it's because they're introverts that they force themselves to get up on a stage. And because they're introverts, they're very thoughtful and engaged and and they concentrate in a way about their performance that sometimes extroverts don't do and extroverts can maybe chatter a little bit too much. So it's sometimes it's the opposite of what you think. Uh, for me personally, 
Uh, I'm someone who's more in the middle. My wife laughs every single time. She just like finds that hysterical because she's a complete introvert. And so compared to her, I'm like wily coyote just running around. But um, I used to have a lot of events, organize some events, um, bring a lot of people together, you know, once a month, a couple times a month. But about every 45 minutes, I would retreat into my bathroom, close the door and just like take a quiet reading break and escape. And then I'd come back out and talk to everybody. So it's sort of a little bit in the middle. Uh, I, I totally relate to what you just said. I come from a family of introverts and I thought I was an extrovert growing up. I felt like I was a, a very extroverted personality. And then I came into the speaking world 20 years ago when we first started the management company and suddenly had this moment of realizing, oh, no, I'm a, compared to these people, I'm a complete introvert. I'm, I'm, I feel very introverted. So a lot of it is contextual, the, the company that you're in at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And like I said, it's like it's like when you compete in anything, you know, I, when I go up on stage, I practice. It sounds very impromptu and so forth, but I've practiced everything a zillion times i've now done it so many times in such large audiences that i have every beat down every moment down every you know every little twist and turn down but i think it's because there's some part of me that's introverted that i focus intensely on getting it right and have the butterflies every single time and that, I used to compete also in sports. And I remember my dad, my dad used to drive me to tournaments, tennis tournaments. And I remember, you know, I was telling him one time, oh, I got real butterflies in my stomach about this game coming up. And he said, well, if you don't have butterflies in your stomach, that's a bit of a problem. If you're not feeling a little adrenaline and a little nerves, that's worse than if you're actually totally calm. You'll actually do less well. There's a U-shaped return if you're just a complete basket case you won't do well but if you're totally relaxed about it you probably won't do as well as you could either so you want to have that kind of edge and I think in some sense that slight discomfort that introverts might have can give them a bit of an edge because they're thinking about what they're going to say and they're thinking about their influence on people whereas extroverts sometimes are not I'm I'm going to switch gears now as I said at the beginning, I think you do a beautiful job fusing the world of business, physics, innovation. And I know that both your parents were incredible astronomers, your mother at NASA, your father, uh, Hubble Space Telescope, pro the program. What kind of, it got me curious when I was reading the background on you, what kind of perspective does that give you as a child? I know you're a father on achieving the impossible, on shooting for the impossible. You know, there's something I think about often is the story of Isidore Rabi, who won the Nobel Prize in physics many years ago. And he was interviewed about, you know, what did your, you know, what was it about your childhood you think that was special that made you very, you know, successful as a scientist or able to achieve? And he said, well, when I was a kid and I would go to school, I would come back and unlike other moms who would ask their kids, did you learn anything? good at school today? What did you learn at school today? She, she would always ask me, did you ask any good questions today? And she helped instill in him a sense of asking questions, which grew into a sense and uh, relishing curiosity. 
And if if there was one thing that I got from my parents and the uh, science career that they had and the science discussions that we used to have was a love of curiosity. And so for me, that has always been a driver. And in fact, for, for the most successful leaders, the most successful scientists, the most successful entrepreneurs and inventors that I've met in my career in all sorts of different fields, if there's one thing that they have in common, it's that they lean into curiosity. And for me, that's been a guiding principle, one of, uh, one of the main guiding principles I've had in my life, which is not so much this stuff about follow your passion that you read all these places. I mean, like, I, you know, I'm passionate about peanut butter ice cream, but I don't follow peanut butter ice cream, right? I don't know where that would take me other than to the ice cream store down the block. Um, but I follow my curiosity. And so I had one career path that I started off in when I was younger and kind of an academic science, blinders on, heads down, charge, 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 super speed, super speed, very intense. And then when I was, and I moved into another field of science because I stopped getting curious, but I was still, I was very curious about this other field of science. Then I did that for about five years. And then when I sort of, my learning curve had kind of plateaued and I found myself getting up in the morning and not really all that curious about what was next, that was a sign to try something different. So I decided to try this crazy thing called business, which I had no clue about. I'd never, you know, I hadn't owned a suit since my bar mitzvah when I was 13. I was at that point like around 29, 30. And I was just curious about like, what, what's an office? Like I'd never been to an office building. I mean, I'd grown up essentially in a university and do all this academic stuff with conferences and writing papers and what do people do inside an office? I just was really curious, like how that worked. And um, remember, I was dating a woman at the time who uh, was a, a paralegal, and I was just getting really curious, like what what do these people do? And so, I, are they do they enjoy it? Because I've never experienced. I, went, I she invited me to go to a end of week happy hour there, all, and I remember going up to the to her office building. This was in Menlo Park, and California and the Bay Area and going and everybody was sort of leaning against the wall and having drinks. And I remember I probably asked 15 people, what do you do? And they sort of just laughed and they couldn't really explain. It was sort of like blah, blah, blah. And we sort of write this and we do that and we defend. Like, are you happy? You enjoy it. 13 out of 13 said no. And I was like, whoa, baby, I guess this business thing sucks. And so then I went back into science for another year or two. But eventually I, w I got curious again, and so I changed career paths. I went into a consulting firm in Manhattan, uh, McKinsey Management Consulting, and that was fascinating. I learned all this sort of business, you know, what people do in the business world, how big companies work, how small companies work, all these projects, mostly by working up close with very successful leaders. And, and by far the most interesting thing was learning from them what they did wrong what they thought their mistakes were. You never want to ask someone about their successes because you could just, often someone's in the right place in the right time and it's hard to separate luck from decisions. But with failures, everyone has an opinion and sometimes they've thought about it quite a bit. And so 
I was curious about that. And then when I stopped getting curious, I made another switch. And that's when I started a biotech company, which I'd never done before. And I was very curious about all the changes that were going on in the biomedical world with all the science that had been discovered in the last, you know, in the prior 10, 20 years and how we were going to translate into that into medicines that could help people. And how do you bring people together around a big goal? And how do you raise money for that? And how do you, you know, bring people together and get over the barriers and the problems and discomforts that they have, the friction that comes up every day? And how do you fire them up? And how do you make good decisions? So I stayed curious about that for a long time. I stayed in part because the job changes. A, a two-person company is very different than a 20-person company is different than a 200-person company. Uh, and then we went public. And so a private company is very different than a, in some ways than a public company. And so that was a long answer to your question about what, what did I get from my scientist parents? Curiosity. So actually, that leads me that leads me pretty perfectly onto what was going to be my next question, which was about 18 years ago, you started a biotech company and the remit of that company was to develop new cancer drugs. And not long after that, I know your father was actually diagnosed with leukemia. So can you talk to me about how that moment led to what eventually became your fascination with the term loon shots? Sure. It, it, not as you mentioned, not long after I started uh, my biotech company, my father was diagnosed with this rare type of leukemia, and I figured, well, now I'm an insider in the field. I have access to all the latest science and tools and drugs and technologies, which I did, and so I got second, third, fourth opinions and new kinds of drugs. Uh, but nothing I did made any difference. He died not long afterwards, and. Over the years, as the company grew and we went public, uh, everywhere I looked inside small companies or big companies, trapped inside the basements of those organizations were promising ideas, ideas that could have helped my father. Not because any of the people involved are bad people, but there's everybody wants to go home and tell their loved ones or family, that they're making a difference. Everybody knows someone with this disease. But because of something strange, it happens when people come together into a group, all of which boils down to one mystery. Why do good teams with the best intentions kill great ideas? Why do good teams, excellent people, great intentions kill these promising ideas? And so I began thinking about that because individually people would be excited about idea. You bring them into a group, they would shoot down that same idea. And then you would see this over and over in the business world, not just in the biomedical world. For example, in uh, Nokia was an interesting example of this where, you know, it went from being famous for, you know, mostly a boring conglomerate famous, mostly for rubber boots and toilet paper to the leading mobile phone company in the world, uh, in, in Europe, it was number one in the world. It was the most valuable company in Europe. It was worth $300 billion. And then a team suggested, a small engineering team in 2004 suggested a new kind of phone with a big touch screen, screen a big touch screen, touch screen, how do you call it? A touch, touch uh, screen. A touch, thank you. Blah, 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 blah. 
a big touch screen and an awesome saying. camera uh, an awesome camera and and this other crazy idea which was this thing these things called applications that would live in the cloud and you could download them onto your phone and that same management team that had built up Nokia into this great success shot down both those ideas and then a few years later that engineering team watched from a distance as their ideas came to life on a stage in San Francisco when Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone. And then a few years after that, Nokia was irrelevant. And then not long afterwards, it was sold to Microsoft for $13 billion. It went from $300 billion to $13 billion. That's the mobile business. It was the loss of a quarter trillion dollars. All of which comes down to this question of why do good teams kill great ideas? And so that was the beginning of how I started in this and I, and it, there was a spark when I ended up working for President Obama's, the, the spark that gave me, that kind of led me into the research that became this book was when I began working with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors. And I was, um, uh, I remember the first day there when I joined, they had, the, the chairman stood up and said, your job is to write the next generation of the Vannevar Bush report. Our, we were working on the future of national research. And unfortunately, I, you know, I'd been kind of heads down running a business and, or science, and I really didn't know much about history or history of science policy or any of that stuff. So I didn't know, I had no idea who Vannevar Bush was or what his report was. I'm so gonna, I had, I'm going to stop you just there. Yeah. So, so Barack Obama asks you, to be part of this project. And the first thing that you're asked to do, you're looking at it thinking, I have no idea. I have no I, idea. Yeah, there was a small group of us working for, and I, the guy says, write the next, you, you, you need to write the next generation of the Vannevar Bush report. And I remember thinking, there's probably a pretty natural reaction when I had no idea what this was, was how do I get out of this project? That was going to be my question because that is yes, a very natural like, reaction. What, you know, I'm obviously the wrong guy for the job and it must have made some mistake and uh, I got other stuff to do and uh, let me see, is there any way I could kind of get out of this project? Sort of a mess. See if uh, I can fake an it, illness or something, anything. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I just, I'm really, I think I am not feeling well. This is just not a good, good year for me, so... <laughs> It's just going to, you know, maybe I ate something, got to go walk my cat, you know, I got to go. Um, anyways, uh, I stayed. I couldn't think of any good real excuse. And then I discovered who Vannevar Bush was. He had created, he was a, an engineer in the 20s and 30s, 1920s, 1930s at MIT. He was the, the number two person at MIT and he transformed the university there into the leading technology place in the world. But he had a sense by the late 1930s that the U.S. was far behind Nazi Germany in the science and technology that would be critical for winning the war. The world was on the brink of war at that time, at the late 1930s. So he quit his job, moved to Washington and talked his way into a meeting with FDR, convinced, told FDR there's a war coming and we're going to lose because we're so far behind Nazi Germany and the science and technology that's going to make a difference. The U-boats and the planes and what turned out to be later jet engines. And 
in fact, nuclear fission. Uh, two German scientists had discovered splitting the atom, which put Hitler within reach of the most dangerous weapon ever created by man. And so he uh, convinced FDR to give him a shot. And he told FDR, here's my proposal, him in one piece of paper with three bullets in the middle. And he said, I want you to authorize a new group inside the federal government that will report only to me and I will report only to you and I will mobilize the nation's scientists for war. And the more I read about what he did and why he did it, the more I realized that he had understood this problem and not only understood the problem and the origin of the problem intuitively, but he'd come up with a solution, a set of ideas and techniques for how to innovate astonishingly fast, especially in a time of crisis and especially inside a very large organization. The military was 2 million people. And he understood that the military was squashing these important promising new ideas, not because they were bad people. They, every single general wanted to win the war as much as the next person but because something that happens when you come in to bring people together into groups. And so that's what led to the research that led to loon shots, that led to the kind of underlying idea and theme in loon shots, and also led to the series of kind of actionable things you can do inside teams and companies to innovate astonishingly fast, to become, as Bush liked to say, the initiator and not the victim of innovative surprise. So let's 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 go back to a, a foundational level here. Talk to me, talk to me about the difference between a moonshot and a loonshot. Because most people listening, you know, we've heard of moonshots, we know what that is. But loonshots, I know, is a word that you came up with for lack of any other word that described what you were hoping to describe. So, what is a loonshot, and can you give me an example of a classic one just to bring that to life? Sure. Well, as you said, everybody knows what a moonshot is. It's a big goal, an exciting destination. But the, if you look at the uh, ideas that have transformed the course of science or business or histories or have changed industries, they rarely arrive with blaring trumpets and red carpets dazzling everybody with their brilliance. They're usually dismissed for years or sometimes decades and their champions are written off as crazy. And as you say, since there wasn't a good word in the English language for that, I made one up. And the classic example is is uh, where the word moonshot comes from. So in 1961, President John Kennedy in the U.S. declared that we would put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And at the time, of course, he was widely applauded. And we did. And that was the origin of the term for a big goal. But most people don't realize that the ideas that got us there were suggested 40 years earlier by a man named Robert Goddard, namely liquid fuel jet propulsion. And at the time that Goddard suggested those ideas, he was widely ridiculed. The New York Times uh, wrote an editorial saying that this man Goddard doesn't understand the basic laws of science that we teach our children every day in high school, namely that in space, there's nothing to push against. Newton's laws of action and reaction. Therefore, rockets can never fly in space. And he was completely ridiculed. And fast forwarding, 14 years after his death, the day after the successful Apollo 11 launch to the moon, based on his ideas, based on rocketry, the Times issued a retraction. Apparently, rocket flight does not 
violate 17th century physics and quote, the times regrets the error. So his Kennedy's ideas were a classic moonshot. Goddard's idea was a classic moonshot. And the reason it's so important to make that distinction is while Goddard's ideas were ridiculed in the US and ignored by the US military, they were taken seriously in Nazi Germany. So German scientists read Goddard's papers and built on those to develop the first jet engines. So they used those to develop the first jet aircraft, flew 100 miles an hour faster than any Allied plane, and the Allies had no answer to them, and the first long-range missiles, the V-1 rockets, the V-2 rockets, which again, the Allies had absolutely no answer to. Fortunately for the Allies, that happened by the time that Nazi Germany had built, the, built those up, um, it was toward the end of the war and it came too late and the allies were able to overcome that disadvantage. But the moral of that, but it was a close call. And the moral of that story is that declaring these big goals is nice, but nurturing loon shots is critical. It's how we achieve those big goals. And what stands, what are some of the classic things that stand in the way of nurturing loon shots, both I mean, you've been talking at a national level there. We've got nationally, we've got organizationally. Are there, I know you've spoken before about a lot about water, which doesn't, doesn't sound like there's a parallel between, you know, organizational structure, innovation and water. But I know that you have a fascination about what happens specifically to water at about 32 degrees. So can you, can you it sounds very specific, but there's an incredible parallel there. Can you walk Walk us through that and how it applies. Sure. It, it comes down to that question of why do good teams kill great ideas? When individually everybody seems to be in favor, why did the generals all reject rockets and maybe individually they were excited about ideas? Why did every company in the world essentially shoot, shoot down the idea of a drug that could lower cholesterol, saying that's a terrible idea? Yet that, of course, became the statin drugs and the Lipitor that's sold a third of a trillion dollars today and saved tens of millions of lives. Why do good teams kill great ideas? Well, there's this myth that this idea that it's all about culture. And so what I'll tell you is why you can forget about culture and why structure is what matters. And so let's come to that glass of water. So imagine you have a glass of water and I, you stick your finger inside. You can swirl it around. And that's always true, except... As you gradually lower the temperature, all of a sudden, the behavior of those molecules completely changes. The water goes totally rigid. You can't stick your finger through. Those molecules have turned into ice from liquid into the solid, rigid ice. Why? The molecules inside are exactly the same. So how did they know to suddenly change their behavior? There was no CEO molecule saying there, oh, it's 33 Fahrenheit, everybody slosh around. Oh, wait, wait, it's 31, everybody line up. Oh, wait, it's back over 33, everybody slosh. They just did it. And so it's understanding why they do it. The, the two forces that act on molecules that tug you between one way or the other way, and that as you vary the temperature, you change the balance of those forces until boom, at a critical point, those two forces suddenly snap and what are those forces inside teams and companies and what are those equivalents of those small changes that teaches you how to change structure the kind of thing that drives culture so you can think of it you can think of this 
it, it's so different than all the stuff that we talk about culture, or you read about culture, and you can think about culture as the patterns of behavior, what you see on the surface. The molecules slosh around or they're totally rigid. Inside a team or company, you have everybody's embracing wild new ideas or they're rigidly rejecting them. You can think of structure as those small changes that transform the patterns of behavior. For example, in the case of water, temperature is one thing, or you sprinkle salt on your sidewalks after it snows because it's a small thing that changes those patterns of behavior, makes the water more liquid, more slushy. In the case of a company, if you reward rank, you're going to get a very political culture. If you reward ideas and intelligent risk-taking, you're going to get a very innovative culture. And there are certain small things that you do when you reward rank, like you have big promotion jumps, you have big base salary jumps, versus other companies where you reward project success. You give everybody a larger stake in outcome. You remove politics from the equation. Managers can no longer have the authority to promote or not promote. You take politics out of the equation. You make promotions less important. You make rank less important. Those are the small changes in structure that can make a big difference in the patterns of behavior, whether teams embrace wild new ideas or they reject them. And here's why it's so important. No amount of someone yelling at a block of ice, hey, molecules, just loosen up a little bit, is going to melt that block of ice. But a small change in temperature can get the job done. A small change in temperature can melt steel. And that's why understanding structure rather than culture, understanding how structure drives culture can help you overcome those barriers and design more innovative teams and companies, and that's essentially what Vannevar Bush did inside the military, that he kept, that allowed the military to both have the discipline and the execution and the operational excellence that you need to deliver stuff on time, on budget, on spec, which you need for millions of soldiers or companies need if they're generating products and need to hit sales targets, but also create at the same time the environment and the conditions separately that will encourage other teams to embrace wild new ideas. And those are two different things and you separate them with two different structures and you learn to understand that your job is to balance those two structures and create those two structures. And so that's what Bush did and that's kind of what I talk about. When I talk with teams and companies, you know, whether it's Microsoft or Google or investment banks or film studios, it's always the same question. How do you balance the core and the new? How do you stay good at on time, on budget, on spec, but how do you at the same time have another separate structure that's extremely good for creating and nurturing those wild new ideas, those loon shots that can transform your industry and kill your business? And how do you balance the core and the new? How do you do those two things at the same time? And so uh, when we talked earlier, I said I'd, it's been kind of a wild couple of weeks. I'm speaking at all these kind of, you know, a couple thousand people here, a couple thousand people there, you know, and just uh, a little while ago, I was on a nuclear submarine talking to the admiral who's responsible for transforming the Navy for the 21st century, a half million person 
organization. And that's another example. If you're on a nuclear submarine and you're a mile offshore, deep underwater, you don't want a lot of risk with your nuclear engine. You want your nuclear engine to be operating pretty on time, on spec, exactly the way you expect it without a lot of hiccups. If there's a hiccup, you could all be fried. At the same time, you don't want to be surprised by a new kind of torpedo because you're also dead. You need to balance the core and the new. For companies, it's a matter of P&L. For military or national security agencies, it's a matter of life or death. I know you you talk about one change in temperature in particular when we're, we're looking at that shift between two states of being, between, you know, sloshing around new ideas to rigid structure, you know, nothing's getting in and nothing's getting out. And that one particular shift in temperature is incentives, is focusing hard on incentives. And one of the ideas that, that came out that I loved and I think is a, is a takeaway for anyone who runs an organization today is you believe that most organizations of a certain scale should appoint a chief incentives officer. Why is that? Well, I guess the incentives are, are that, that part of what drives the structure. So if you have, if you think about every employee, they're going to, you know, you, the CEO can come in the room and, you know, running a company for 13 years, I was, you know, one of the guys who did that. You come into the conference room and you have, you, you know, your soldiers on the one hand that are focused on operation and execution and getting stuff done on time, on budget, on spec. And then you have your more creators, your artists who are talking about the wild new ideas. And you, you know, pound the table, rah, rah, everybody come together. Let's all be brothers. Let's sing kumbaya, you know. And then you leave the room and nothing happens. You know, they're excited for a few minutes and then what do they do? Well, they do what their incentives tell them and they do their, you know, there's the, if you are going to reward rank and promotion, for example, and we can, there's, it gets more, there's a lot more detail to it. But just as a simple example, if you have like big base salaries, people are going to focus on and big bumps in base salaries as you go up the corporate ladder and your boss is the person deciding, you're going to really focus on taking care of what your boss thinks and making sure your boss knows how good your project is. And P.S., the guy down the hall, I didn't want to say anything, but I think, you know, I'm hearing some bad stuff from him. Don't say I said something, but like, you know, I'm hearing from some customers. He's a little shaky. Maybe his marriage is, you know, having some trouble too. I didn't want to say anything. In other words, you focus on politics because you're trying to convince your boss to take one of those slots where you can get this big promotion. Now imagine, let's say you, you take, and there's a, a small number of companies that have started to do this. You take the promotion decision away from the boss. You say, wait, boss, bosses go like, managers go like, wait, are you, are you kidding? These are my people. I'm going to be the one who's deciding. Well, at a company like McKinsey or Google or, or a few more progressive companies, for exactly this reason, they have someone independent from maybe halfway across the world fly in and interview the boss, people horizontally, vertic you know, uh, up, down, left, right, customers about any candidate for a serious promotion. And then they fly back and make a recommendation to an independent committee. They're chosen specifically because they don't know anybody in that local office. So what happens? 
Well, instead of the, you know, let's say there's 10 associates or more junior people all fighting for one job and trying to suck up to the boss and have sharp elbows for their neighbors and shoot down their ideas, it's pointless to shoot down your neighbor's ideas. It's pointless to suck up to your boss because everybody knows that. So instead, you just focus on getting your job done and collaborating with you and being a good colleague. So when you remove the manager from the decision, that's one example of how incentives matter. Your incentives, instead of like about being about promotion, your incentives become more about performing well in a way that will be measured. So what does this have to do with the chief incentives officer? I gave you just one example, but there are many, many such examples of how you create incentives to get the behavior that you want. Now, if you want people focused on the outcome of their projects, let's say you're making a coffee machine and you're deep in the middle of the organization, you're making a coffee machine, you have to create an incentives around the quality of that work and the consistency of that work. And that's tricky. If you want to create incentives that are really tailored to intelligent risk-taking, as opposed to simply, well, you know, the whole company did well, so here's some stock options and congratulations, which does nothing for anybody. Because if you're down in the middle of the organization, you really have very little impact on the total revenue or the total stock price. So if you want a more custom solution, you need someone who's thinking about that as their first priority and understanding all the places that that can go wrong, understanding how to tailor it, understanding what what matters to you might be totally different than what matters to me, might be totally different than what matters to the third guy. So you want to create a somewhat custom solution. Now, companies spend a ton of money on chief technology officers. And it's a strategic role. You give them a fixed budget. You say, let's give everybody the, the best gadgets and tools for that budget. Now, if you're running a business or I'm running a business, which would you rather have? A workforce that has the best gadgets in the industry or a workforce that's the most motivated in the industry whose goals are most aligned with their incentives? Well, if it's me, I'd rather have the most motivated workforce in the industry and screw the gadgets. So why do we have a chief technology officer but not a chief incentives officer? You know, you're just reminding me, I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with the CEO of probably on this side of the world, what is a, a, a major, you know, I would call them a loonshot company, someone who's, who's shooting for some pretty incredible stuff. And he said that he had read the book, I don't know if you've read it, the book Love Languages, The Five Love Languages. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. He'd read it, he'd read it for his relationship and he suddenly thought, hang on, these aren't just love languages, these are leadership languages. And so he change their entire incentive structure around these five languages. For those of you who haven't read it, definitely check it out from a personal relationship point of view. But also from a leadership point of view, there's languages like gifts. There's languages, words of affirmation, um, quality time. I, I forget the other two in this moment. But what he realized is that every significant member of his team was motivated by a different language of appreciation. So he changed all of the incentives around that particular person's leadership language. And he said that the change in productivity, the change in motivation was incredible. Like he was no longer rewarding people with something that they gave not two, you know, two iotas about. So there exactly. are, are ways of customizing. So it doesn't have to be, you know, 
financial stock options, you know, the, the standardized incentives. Right. I think that's like the biggest waste in corporate America because giving people stock options is uh, now become this sort of standard thing. But think about it. If you're in the middle of a sizable organization and I'll, I'll go back to your coffee machine designer, what a stock option does for you. And I know so many leaders who pat themselves on the back. Well, everybody has equity. Well, okay, let's say I'm making my coffee machine and I'm eight levels down from the CEO. How does that equity motivate me to work harder on my coffee machine? What it motivates me is what's called in economics a free rider problem. It motivates me to twiddle my thumbs and convince my boss that I'm indispensable, do as much politics as possible, while maybe calling around to make sure I can get a backup job somewhere else in case stuff goes south. Now, if the company does well, really doesn't matter, depend on my coffee machine, my stock options do great. And if the company does poorly, well, you know, I try to find a job somewhere else. So what you want to do is create these customer incentives. Now, I gave just the specific example of, let's say, a financial one. But as uh, I completely agree, and I remember thinking about the five love languages in the book when I was talking about hard equity versus soft equity, hard equity being like pure financial. Some people care more about, let's say, you know, program design engineers or designers they may care more about being allowed to enter their product in a competition among their peers. That will motivate them enormously. And then some companies say, well, everything we do is classified, so you can't. Well, if you could spend the energy and time to figure out what matters for that person in a customized way, you can maximize the motivation and the incentives for a fixed budget. And sometimes it's cash and sometimes it isn't cash. And in fact, the places where it isn't cash, it actually saves you money. The reason I mentioned a chief incentives officer is, you know, anyone who's run a company knows you're really busy. You're putting out fires, you're answering investors, you, you have quarterly earnings call, annual reports, press releases, company meeting, you have all sorts of stuff going on. You don't really have a lot of time to create custom solutions. And not only that, there's been a lot of very interesting, very important work in behavioral sciences, behavioral economics that talk about the kinds of things that drive behavior that are different than what we thought. The kinds of, sometimes they call them biases, but you could flip that around. They're opportunities to tap into more powerful motivators, the kinds that are counterintuitive. Does your average HR person who is not trained in those skills have those skills? Not really. And so that's why I talk about we're underinvesting in understanding and applying incentives well compared to, let's say, technology, where there's all this time and energy and money. Almost every single company has a chief technology officer at this point, in addition to a chief information officer. But they still have like they have 21st century technology, but 19th century incentives. I'm going to I'm going to change topics slightly. I want you I want you to talk to me about Theodore Weil because reading your your analysis of Theodore Weil was a real kind of light bulb moment for me. Sure, well, I we started a little bit by talking about Vannevar Bush and what he did in the Second World War. And as it turns out, the more I read about it, the more I was sort of fascinated to discover even though Bush was working inside a federal system, inside federal agencies and navigating it, the ideas that he 
applied actually came from the business world. And that's because in addition to being a very successful engineer and a very successful uh, organizer and leader and having built out MIT into what it, what it became, he was also a very successful entrepreneur. He started a little company called Raytheon, which is now a very big company. Uh, and he was very good at working with folks with industries. And one of the people he uh, befriended, who actually became a mentor to him, was a guy named Frank Jewett, who was the president of Bell Labs. And Frank Jewett was hired by a guy named Theodore Vail, who saved AT&T. And so Theodore Vail did what Vannevar Bush did, but 50 years earlier. So Theodore Vail was brought in by a banker, a banker named J.P. Morgan, not the actual bank, but the actual person uh, in the start of the 20th century to rescue a very big failing company that was sinking fast named AT&T. Alexander Graham's Bell's phone patents had run out and there were hundreds of upstarts that had better tools and better technologies and better systems that were re catching up very fast and AT&T was sinking and about to go under. And J.P. Morgan had understood that the leaders of AT&T were just, had been just sitting around milking Alexander Graham's Bell's patent, taking the cash and going back to their homes and Boston and spending that cash and doing nothing. So he brought in a guy named Theodore Vail, who had been at AT&T years earlier and been kind of frustrated and because he wanted to invest in new stuff. So JP Morgan bought controlling shares throughout the board, brought in Vail and said, figure this out. This is, an, this is a national institution. I need you to save it. So he looked around, got the lay of the land, and then he announced to the public, we are going to provide the nation with one service, one system that you can dial anywhere in the entire nation. And remember, this was at the, this was the year was 1907. You could barely call between cities. Service was terrible, it was declining because electricity decayed over a wire. And nobody could figure out how to solve that problem. Quantum, the electron had just been discovered. Quantum mechanics, which has the answer, wouldn't be discovered for almost another 20 years. So when he said that, it was a crazy idea. I mean, you can barely call between Boston and New York. How long are you going to call between New York you know, and San Francisco? And nobody could solve this problem. So to nurture those crazy ideas, he created a little group within Bell Labs, within the AT&T large organization, and he called it, eventually, Bell Laboratories. That organization this created the vacuum tube, which allowed this first international call, to the first call to be placed across the country, eventually the transistor, which led, probably the most important invention of the 20th century, led to the electronics age and the personal computer, the CCD chip, eight Nobel Prizes, so the laser, probably the greatest research lab in history. And the principles he applied, and that's why I end up calling them the Bush-Vail rules, were the same principles that Vannevar Bush used in World War II. He understood a system can't be in two phases at the same time. A glass of water can't be liquid and solid at the same time, but you need both phases. In the case of 
Bell Labs, the way Theodore Vail put it is, you need the operators to deliver great service on time, on budget with the cables and answer people's calls. But you need these bunch of loonies quarantined somewhere coming up with these crazy new ideas like the transistor. And you need both. And the leadership style that he invented, which is a focus on leading much more like a gardener than a Moses, a focus on balancing the, the getting the touch and the balance between the soldiers on the one hand and the artists working on the creative stuff on the other hand and shepherding the ideas back and forth between the two because he realized that the failure point in most innovation is never in the supply of new ideas. You put 10 people in a room with a stack of post-its for an hour and you get a thousand ideas. The failure point is in the transfer between these two groups. And so he led like a gardener and got his leadership team to lead like gardeners to manage that transfer because there would always resistance because these are two different phases. There's always resistance. And so he got the cycle going between these two groups. And most importantly, was the I think of it as the heart. He, lo- he learned to love his artists and soldiers equally. And that's where so many leaders stumble and so many companies stumble because leaders, you know, they grow up as one or the other, as this wild, crazy, innovative artist, or they grow up as this very disciplined, on-time, on-budget soldier. And then they really prefer their own kind and they signal that to the rest of the organization. And when they do, the organization becomes unbalanced. It's like if you're a parent favoring one child over the other, it's bad for both because they just, as soon as you leave the room, they do, they stop cooperating. I'm, I mean, I've definitely, you know, as a leader in my organization have been guilty of that. You know, the, the conversations, especially when I first, I mean, I first started the business with a partner and I was in my mid twenties. And, you know, and I, re- I loved the creative conversations. You know, I loved the, the build conversation. I loved talking to the people where anything w- was possible. And then, but the operational, you know, the logistics, and there was a lot of logistics in our business. Those conversations, you know, I really struggled through. You could feel, I'm sure at the, if I asked anyone that used to work for me, at the other end of those conversations, they could probably feel my disconnect. It wasn't a world I understood. It wasn't a world that I enjoyed. I very much appreciated the people that did it, but I wasn't, you know, my love for it wasn't huge. And definitely that has an impact as to where you, the output that you get from each one of those functions. Let's, I just want to talk about that gardener, be a gardener, not Moses, and loving your artists and your soldiers equally part again. That transfer, that cycle that you talk about, I've, I've also witnessed that unless you get that cycle that transfer of information right and it cycles through frequently often accurately and with respect then everything falls down what are the keys to getting that you know the the ideas come out of the artist they go to the soldiers that get tested out the feedback comes back again accurately and respectfully and it keeps moving what's the key to as a leader to managing that transfer to acting like a gardener Great question. And we're out of time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, just put it on a postcard for me. Send it back. Yeah. No, the funny thing is like when I get, I get so many calls now from CEOs, from leadership teams, from people in the military. And it is, it's about how do you bridge the divide? I have a whole talk, which is just, here's like the five things you do to bridge the divide. And then, uh, you know, and in the military, it's the exact same thing because the, you would, there's this sort of 
mistaken view that military leaders are just soldiers and they just want on time and they reject the new absolutely not of course they understand that there's new weapons coming up and wacky new weapons you know ai and and uh drones and and swarms and crazy robot technology do any of us want to see our soldiers go on a battlefield surrounded by machine learning robots and get slaughtered of course not so they absolutely understand they want to be working with the great scientists and the great engineers and the great inventors. And they absolutely understand that – well, the best ones understand that a different mindset is needed. You can't legislate to a group of inventors. I'd like 3.1 ideas on Monday and 3.7 ideas on Tuesday and another 4.3 on Wednesday or you're fired. But you can do that and you should be doing that with soldiers. You should – you should, you know, if someone is manufacturing a plane – you don't want lots of risk-taking and failure. You don't want to say, hey, just throw, put 10 planes in the sky and we'll see which nine fall down. We'll keep the good one. So the better leaders on both sides understand that. And so that so many of the calls that I get are from uh, sometimes very well-known CEOs who are like, sometimes it's companies who started off scrappy and when there was a CEO and there was like just five people and then even 50 people, the CEO did that job personally, shuttled between the two and helped bridge that divide and helped get the soldiers, you know, embracing some new ideas and taking time out of their busy day and then help get the feedback back. Because when you don't, as you say, that's where everything falls down. And there, you have to understand that kind of at the core of that is speaking a different language. I call it the beautiful baby problem. We talked earlier, we, we both have young children. Artists see their idea. And when I give talks, I usually show pictures of my beautiful babies and I, it becomes very clear. Artists, creators, whether you're a biologist in the lab who's discovered a new protein target inside a cell and thinks you're going to cure cancer or an engineer has created an incredibly elegant algorithm. Artists see their stuff as a beautiful baby. Soldiers see a shriveled up raisin covered in vomit and poop. And that's the core problem. And you want that tension. You want that conflict. But you want the artist creators really excited about their new idea and the potential of their new idea. If they're not, then you have a bigger problem. They're probably just doing incremental boring stuff and they're not very inspired. And then you won't be the one finding the breakthrough idea. It'll be your competitor. And you'll only discover it too late when it's a bullet coming to your head. So you want them seeing their stuff as beautiful baby. And you want the soldiers to look for the flaws. They're both right. And you want that tension. You want the soldiers to de-risk it, right? Johnny Ive came up with a beautiful design for the iPad. It was Tim Cook that found a way to make it for $600, not $6,000. You needed both. You need both. And so the, the key is really learning those tools and techniques about bridging the divide, understanding where they're coming from, understanding that the incentives are different, understanding that for the soldier, let's say you have a sales guy, someone comes up with a new project, a new idea, you know, for him to stop making sales calls, which is what he's measured on or her, and which is, you know, going to lead to some conversion rate. To put that down, to put his phone down, to try to understand some complicated new project or product that's never going to work well, talk to these engineers who just think their thing, 
you know, doesn't stink at all and is beautiful and to try to decipher all the gobbledygook that they're saying and then find out where it blows up and then try that's days out of his life that he could have been making sales calls and commissions he's just sacrificed. And he has a tuition and he has a mortgage. And you've just asked him to do that. Now, then you're asking him to take the feedback. Of course, it won't work. He said, you show it to your customers who trust you and you go out to beers and it blows up in their face. And like, that was just a big waste of my time. Why are you doing this? And then they go and they turn to his competitor who isn't irritating them. You have to understand where people are coming from. What are their incentives? And then use that understanding to create solutions that bridge the divide, which is, as I said, a longer story. <laughs> I wish I wait for for those of you who want to go further into that Loon Shots the book definitely definitely check it out and all of the writing of Safi I want to I want to I just want to switch phases for a while and it was it was another interview that I was listening to that you had done and you know we've we've talked about space travel we've talked about molecules we've talked about the second world war and I, I want to talk about a different battle and that's the battle of your mind which is often the thing that can stop great ideas, stop great people, stop great movements, challenges, companies in the world. Talk to me about the chairman of the mind routine. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's, yeah, I haven't talked about that one in a long time. In fact, I've only talked about that one once ever. Um, so that was a, uh, some uh, kind of a trick or a technique that I either sort of stumbled across or developed many years ago, 20 years ago to help me get to sleep better more quickly because I would just have all these racing thoughts going on in my head. And it's just like a dialogue. It's in some sense, you're like at a conference table and it's like everybody's speaking at once. If you can imagine that imagery. So what I found, it's, it's my mind. Yeah. It's and, my experience with my mind like most of the time. Talking over each other and you sort of think about one and then somebody else pipes up and then somebody else pipes up and then you're back to the first person. It just like goes in endless circles and then before you know it, it's like 4 a.m. and then you wake up and the alarm goes and you're exhausted. So the kind of trick that I developed is firstly understand kind of label each of the people at the table. There might be someone who has a, you know, there's Mr. Family who has like a family thing going on or there's Mr. Relationship or there's Mr. Finance or there's Mr. Career or there's Mr. You know, investments or whatever. So you put a little placard at the table and now you understand who, you know, what are the concerns? Why are these people piping up there? You understand, you start by the understanding that each one of these has your well-being at heart. They're each trying to tell you something and they're each talking because they're worried that you haven't heard them. So then what you do is you take control as a chairman of this conference table and you go around the table and you say, okay, Mr. Finance, is there something you'd worried about? Yes, there is. Well, how, how much time would you like to discuss whatever that issue is? Do you need 17 hours? No, don't be ridiculous. Do you need three seconds? Well, I'd like more than three. So where, you know, it has two minutes. Yeah, that should do it. I should be able to get my issue on the table. And so now you address that. And then you kind of address that directly with Mr. Finance. Do you feel like you've really gotten on the table everything you need to say? Is there anything else? And you find if you just have that kind of weird imaginary discussion, it's like, uh, oh, well, no, no, that's pretty much it. 
I'm kind of done. And then that one gets quiet. And then you keep going around the table, whether it's a relationship thing or like, you know, sometimes the relationship one is or the career one is replaying a movie from the day. The reason they're replaying that movie is they want you to learn a lesson. You said something to your boss and it was a stupid thing to say. And they're replaying that movie, not because they're sadists, but because they have your best interest. They want you to learn what did you do wrong so you could do differently next time. Did you get that lesson? And as soon as you say, why are you replaying that? You know, what's the lesson here? Oh, was the point that, you know, next time I should do this at a meeting? They're like, yes, thank you for listening to me. That's what I've been trying to tell you. Oh, do you have anything else? No, I'm done. And then the movie goes off. And then you just go around the table. And so you can, so that I found was very helpful for getting to bed, getting to sleep faster. Cause then you just silence, you, you learn the lesson that what the main message that each one of those guys is trying to tell you and boom, you're able to go to sleep better. The reason I brought it up is because I tried it and I tried it on a plane. I flew in from New Zealand yesterday and I, I had had a meeting and I, and something was bothering me, you know, and it's, I was trying to prepare for this interview. And I need to be in a, in a creative space or at least a deep listening, learning space in order to prepare. And I just couldn't, you know, my mind was whirring, those voices were going off. And I thought, hang on, I'm just going to try this. And I did. And I said, okay, how long, how long do you need to tell me, you know, what it is that's bothering you? And I love that s- specific language. And I was like, oh, probably about five minutes. And I'm like, okay, tell me. So I ran through very quickly all the things that, you know, could have done better in that meeting, could have said better, could have prepped better. And it was like, okay, we're done. Yeah, we're done. And it was incredible just how there was silence after that point, enough mental silence for me to be able to dig more into your work. And so I thought it was really important because you can't innovate unless you have some mental space. You can't. You can't go for those loon shots unless there is the mental space there to do so. So it's, I just wanted to say thank you. It's, it is an amazing tool. Wow, this is a very meta interview because something I said in a prior interview created a technique for you who's doing a current interview. So that's like a weird meta weird positive circular. feedback loop. And it, you know that what I find is a shortcut. I mean, that's, it is pretty fast. I tend to write down the lessons because once you write down that lessons, that person who was where it was, you know, something was bothering them about something. Once you write down with those, that person, it's like, whoa, you really got it. Thank you. Boom. Like total done. So just having it in, but what I do now is sort of even since I just started using social media, I didn't use it before. I see these things, you know, with the hashtags. So now I'll get some random stray thought. I might be driving, I'm beating myself up about something or whatever. And I'll just go hashtag self-criticism. I'm like, oh, that's what I'm doing. Or hashtag, you know, a different hashtag or hashtag, you know, anxiety about, you know, X or hashtag. And as soon as you put the little hashtag with the thought, you sort of instantly feel better. Like, oh, that's what I was doing. You label it. It gives you some distance from it. You observe it. You're like, oh yeah, well, self-criticism is there for a reason. I'm trying to learn something. It's not. So now I I get it. There was positive intent. Oh, I'm anxious about this. Well, yeah, actually that makes sense that I'm anxious for these reasons, but you know, you can control what you control and you can't what you can. And so that's sort of, and it's, so now I do have this kind of interesting trigger, which is when you get these thoughts that create some feeling in your stomach, you hashtag them and that that actually gives you even more power, even more quickly to stay calm and get a, a clear space in your head to 
to be creative and to be productive. Actually, there was a there was a coach that I saw very briefly, actually, for about half an hour. I went to I went to see this particular coach that had been recommended, and I ended up leaving early because I thought, no, this isn't this isn't working for me. This isn't for me. And she'd said one, she'd given me one tool. And I remember thinking that is the most useless tool I have ever come across. And it was a mental tool that if you have an unhelpful loop or unhelpful thoughts, just imagine you're pressing the delete button on your laptop, just delete, delete. And I, at the time I, I remember thinking that's just, that's ridiculous. And I left early and, and got on with my day. I have used that tool. Apologies to the coach that I didn't stick around for, but I have used that tool so often. Delete. Delete. So another one, I, I give you the delete button. I wanna, I'm going to finish up now. I'm going to finish up by going you know, full circle where we started, and, and that's with NASA. Um, I know that you, that you have a deep, deep connection to NASA through the work of your parents. And you wrote an article recently about the fact that you have concerns around NASA's ability to be able to shoot for loon shots in this lifetime. Can you explain a little bit about why that is? And if I were to suddenly hand NASA to you, because I have that kind of power, hand NASA to you as an entity, what would you want them to shoot for? What what would you like to see the loon shot of your lifetime be? I I think you need to... NASA is one of those sort of organizations, and I'm not the only one who's expressed concern. And all that being said, I think they are doing some amazing things. But... They started as this scrappy organization and grew larger and larger almost to the point where they've crossed through this phase transition. Um, and now they're trying to figure out what's their mission, how, what, what should they do. And what I would like to see them do is become the Bell Labs for outer space. Nurture all those crazy wild ideas, some that are too crazy for anybody in private industry to do, which is exactly what they started as, exactly what the National Science Foundation is supposed to be doing, what DARPA is supposed to be doing, but no one is really doing that so much for outer space. And you can't count on Jeff Bezos, runs a for-profit company, or Elon Musk runs a for-profit company, or Richard Branson runs a for-profit company. They're, they don't have the scale and the resources to invest in crazy ideas that may or may not be commercial. Things like making a switch out of a semiconductor device instead of a filament. Like everybody knows you need a filament to make a switch. That gave us the transistor. Or any of the other dozens and dozens of crazy loon shots that led to, let's say, the laser, much of which was invented at uh, Bell Labs. So what's the 21st century version of the transistor or the laser? that will get us to Mars or get us to the next solar system. Things that sound completely absurd today. And I'd like to see NASA become the Bell Labs for outer space to do the stuff that Elon Musk and Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos can't do. If, you, if, if NASA were to do one thing that could help them move towards that loon shot, is there something that you would, something that you would like to see them do? Well, they, you know, NASA has to create that kind of Bell Labs mentality and mindset and go back to what it was 30 or 40 years ago. And the reason it's so difficult for NASA is they have up on all these walls, failure is not an option, which is certainly true when you're doing the franchise and you've got lives at stake and you're sending men to the moon or whatever. 
But failure has got to be an option if you're creating new stuff. It's exactly the opposite. So that's why when you're talking about military or space agencies or hospitals, I talk to a lot of hospitals, they have a great advantage and a great disadvantage and it's the same thing. Lives are at stake. The great disadvantage of lives being at stake is that you're focused on minimizing risk for the, exactly the right reasons. Lives are at stake. That makes it incredibly hard to come up with the next wild new ideas because those involve a ton of risk. So you have to get really, really good at balancing your artists and your soldiers, at embracing zero risk on this side, but lots of risk on the other side. And that's the only way to do that is kind of the systems that Bush and Vale came up with. And that's kind of what I was getting back to is Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, they can't afford as people who are running private companies to invest in wild new ideas that seem absurd and have no commercial potential, like the transistor at the time or the biotechnology industry or the laser or you know all this stuff that preceded the personal computer revolution, that preceded the telecom revolution of the 20th. It didn't, it wasn't clear what the application would be, so nobody could really invest in it. And that the federal agencies, Na, you know, NASA, DARPA had that opportunity, and Theodore Vail created that inside AT&T. And that's what I would love to see NASA do is become that kind of Bell Labs for outer space. If I could lock you away in a room to work on one loon shot for the next couple of years, do you have one in mind? Yeah, my next book, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, a very crazy idea about um, applying some of the stuff we're talking about to a very different world, to the world of markets and economics in a way that nobody's done before. And so I'm in the middle of doing that right now. And I probably, as soon as I'm you know, finished with, I don't know if I'll ever be finished with going out and speaking about this current book. But as soon as I can kind of wind that down and get back into my little cave over here, that's what I'm dying to do is work on that loon shot. Well, Safi, thank you. Thank you for your time. For anyone that's listening, they can't see you right now, but the room you're in has got progressively darker <laughs> until I literally can barely see your face. So appreciate your time and, and your time away from your family to make this happen. All right. Thanks a lot, Julie. really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that i have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth i hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, 
Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.